0: Wednesday night before Thanksgiving, 1976, I was driving home in Colorado, had 18 friends coming home with me for Thanksgiving dinner. We had been at the Academy since June 28th and had not been allowed to leave until that Wednesday night after midterms. And we had spent that time being abused, basically being treated as what they called smacks. Smack is uh, an affectionate term used for freshmen at a military uh, academy. It's the sound that human waste makes when it hits the wall, and that's basically how they describe you. And from the moment I arrived there until that moment, I had literally had plenty of people trying to do everything they could. To convince me that's what and who I was. So as we were leaving the academy, going home for Thanksgiving, it was like we had all been set free. Most of the guys that I went to school with were on the extreme Class A personality type. Of the 18 who were going home with me, 16 were either on the rugby team, the wrestling team, or the football team. So of the Class A personalities, these were the classier A type personalities, and they had been set free. So they descended on my small town home, 3,500 people, and it was changed forever. It was a little bit like the invasion of a biker gang coming into some small rural area. Nobody knew exactly what had hit them. We had people literally sleeping under tables, lying all over the place, and for Three days, it was just absolute pandemonium. I will never forget the look on my mother's face as we left. My parents were not spiritual people, but if I did not know better, I would say she was thanking God. It was my last Thanksgiving as a non-Christian. The following Thanksgiving would be a completely different experience for me. Instead of something that I had to look back and apologize for, it changed radically. And to be able to have Thanksgiving this weekend with people, Jake indicated to you that we've had Thanksgiving with for almost 30 years. We had 53 people at Thanksgiving this year. And of those people, there were six couples whose weddings I had done. And I don't even know that we had the most festive setting. We had plastic plates purchased at Costco. But Costco is where Jesus goes for bargains. (laughs) The food was great, but what was great was not even... Just the fellowship. It was the representation of the dramatic difference that God has made in my life. To be able to hear Jake share today. You know, I am so proud of him. He's come such a long, long way. Uh, Very early on in his life, we started trying to mess him up. And spent basically 24 years doing that. then Kelsey came in. and She's the cleanup crew that comes in to try to help him get to what he needs to be. And it's always fun watching their interaction. I think, like my mother was thinking, thank God, when we all left, there are times when she leaves our house, I can hear her silent praying, thank God, we're going home. (laughs) But to be able to have them here. And to share Thanksgiving, to have Scott home. I just sat there and, and had a lot of meaningless conversations and fun conversations and deep conversations. But I was basking in the glory that represents my life. The first three songs, the first four songs, actually, that we sang. I love, I love the Latin song that we sang on the fourth song because it talks about us being in God's hands, turning to Him and crying out to Him and calling out to Him. Then the fifth song we sang is Amazing Grace. And of all the songs that I've chosen to be played when I die, that is the one song I want to close it out with because I want my family to recognize I realized my life was a life lived by grace. The grace of God. That there was nothing in me that deserved all the rich blessings that I have. I love thanksgiving. I love what it reminds me of. Because I'm not the same man that I was that Wednesday going home in 1976. You see, I've been transformed by the love of Christ. And that's the title of my lesson. I want to talk today about what that transformation needs to do and how it should impact and affect us. Jake talked about hating to disappoint his wife. I hate to break this to you, Jake. From the moment your mother said, I do, she's lived with disappointment. And we feel that towards God. We don't want... To disappoint God. And yet God, that's not what God wants us to feel. God wants us to feel His overwhelming grace. He wants us to feel that in His presence we don't have to worry about anything. That He holds our life in His hands. And He is better able to take care of us than you and I will ever be able to be on our own. That God looks at us as if we are His treasured children. He longs so much for us to feel the security that doesn't have to live a life motivated by guilt, but can live a life motivated by grace. By the love that He has shown to us from the day that we were born. One of my favorite characters in the Bible is the Apostle Paul, because there are so many uh, specific letters that he's written that show us so much about his life and his transformation. Maybe the single most written about character in the New Testament. Other than Jesus himself and in his life, we can see the incredible influence that God has had on him, that Jesus transformed in him. And then to watch the way his life impacted so many people. We sang the song before I came up here forever. That that is how faithful God is. That God is faithful. And your life and my life, they don't end at the funeral. Our lives carry on and they will literally forever and ever have an impact. The only question is, what kind of an impact will that be? And that's a choice God's given us to make. But if we can allow Christ's love to truly transform us in every way, then we can be assured that that will be a living legacy that will continue to produce life over and over again. In Acts chapter 7, in verse 54 through chapter 8, verse 3, you have the story of the disciple Stephen, who we know was a, a brother full of the Spirit. The Bible describes him as that. He was so excited by what God had done in his life, that he spoke very openly and very aggressively to a very, very religious group of people. People who, quite frankly, like Jake described, didn't want to hear the things in their life that weren't the way they should be. And the sad thing is, that can be how some of us are. We would much rather have everybody just agree with us. Just like us. Just get along with us. And yet, Stephen, full of the Spirit, comes to these people and he is literally laying out the promise of god the opportunity that having a relationship with jesus can have for their lives and in verse 54 of chapter 7 it says when they heard this they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him and it escalates because stephen doesn't back down he's so excited about jesus and the impact that jesus has had on his life that he continues to teach about jesus And they just get madder and madder and madder. And what ends up happening is they literally drag him out. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been drugged, but this isn't some Hollywood thing. This is a mob, a frantic, enraged mob dragging him through the city to the outside of the city for the sole purpose of stoning him to death. One of the most brutal ways that a person could die. I don't know if you've ever been hit by a rock, but can you imagine the crowd of people in this church gathering around you and everyone throwing rocks until you are dead? It's a brutal, an ugly, a vicious death. And yet on the end of that, Stephen's spirit was to surrender to Christ, to trust in God. In verse 58, it says, Meanwhile, witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul, who had become the Apostle Paul, was there. Many Bible scholars believe that he probably was a witness to the crucifixion. Whether he was or not, we really don't have any clear proof. But we do know he was aware of it. We do know he was aware of the influence and the impact that the followers of Jesus had had. And he was, like this crowd, so enraged, so full of confidence in himself and his own righteousness, that his response wasn't one of humility, it was one of anger. And he went to the extreme of literally pursuing believers of the faith and dragging them from their homes. To be executed. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 1 through verses 22. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. This is sometime later. It's after the persecution has gone from the initial stages to the stage where literally Christians are being murdered everywhere. And so Paul, Saul at the time gets a license to travel 150 miles to Damascus to hunt down Christians that may have escaped the initial persecution in Jerusalem and gotten to the outskirts. He's not just willing to get them out of town. He wants them gone. This is a religious fanatic, a zealot, who has one thing in mind, and that is to destroy the faith in Christ. And yet on that road, the Bible describes his conversion. When he struck blind and all around him, the only thing he can hear is the voice of Jesus Christ saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's quite a communion message, isn't it? In that one simple question, it brought to Reality. Who he really was. He couldn't deny it. His only response was to say, who are you? I am Jesus Christ. Whom you are persecuting. This wasn't a theological debate. It was standing in the presence of God with everything you are. Everything you think, everything you've ever done, laid out with no discussion and no debate. Jesus tells him to get up, to go into Damascus, to find Ananias, and there he would be told what he needed to do. Every one of us has been on a road to Damascus at some point in our life. The purpose of that road isn't to judge. It's not to condemn. We're already condemned. We've already been judged by our own sins. The purpose of that road is the salvation road. It's the road of transformation. The purpose of that road is to bring us to a place where we're not living in fear of disappointing God, but instead we live out of a desire to show appreciation to God. We're going to look at four specific things that I believe that Christ's love is meant to do in our lives. To change us. And I've been thinking about this a lot before Thanksgiving as... As I was preparing food, I just spent a lot of time cooking and thinking. And over and over and over, I think about where I was at this time. I think about where I was one year ago and how much different my life is now. I look at that all that's taken place where we were as a family a year ago, the events that have taken place, the number of cars that Libby's wrecked. I look at. <laughs> The things that could have happened. For those of you who don't know, Libby totaled an indestructible car the other day. And someone was asking me, what do you think happened? I said, the Libby factor. And Kelsey was a little bit protective of Libby because Kelsey has that same genetic deformity that Libby has. (laughs) She's one of the few people I know. I think she had three accidents in two weeks or something. And... So I told both of them, I'm sending them both to remedial driving school where they're going to get trained. And I don't want them out in the road. But I think about how different that could have been. Jake and Kel and, and Libby could have died. No, they didn't. Thank God it wasn't that big of a deal. They were fine. But what could have happened? Thanksgiving would have been a dramatically different thing for a young widow and an old widower. Scott was on the phone talking to Jake when that happened. He heard the sound. He didn't know exactly what's going on. And he called me and said, Dad, I think Mom and Jake have been in a car accident. Several years ago, the potential of his mom dying really sent Scott into a tailspin and messed with his head. And took him to very dark places that we all followed him into. And so as, as I was cooking, I started thinking about just what took place a few weeks ago and how different that Thanksgiving could be for us if it weren't for the hand of God. And you know what? The food became insignificant. The fellowship even was less significant, although that fellowship helped that feeling. What was significant was God. And God's presence and the presence... He gives us. One of the first things that took place in Paul's life when Jesus began to question him and expose his life was the first thing that's got to happen to us. And that is brokenness. We have to get to a place where we're, we're going to stop trying to deny who we really are. That we don't have to hide. We don't have to shuck and jive. That we can come in here and just be who we are. We are. There is no way you and I could deserve the right to be here. We can't earn our salvation. We can't earn our position in the pew. It's a gift. It's the passage that Jake talked about in Romans chapter 5. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At the most sinful point of your life, you were met on a Damascus road. What does God want? What is His first desire? We see that in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36. When the people that were at Pentecost heard Peter preach for the first time publicly, after his own denial of Christ, after his own failures and sin, and when they recognized that it was Christ whose presence they were standing in front of, what it says is literally... That the people, when they heard this, were cut to the heart. What messes us up in the church more often is that we stop allowing our heart to be broken. We stop allowing ourselves to be cut. And we start feeling pretty good about the progress we've made. And instead of seeing that as only because we are resting in the hands of Christ, we somehow believe it's us. And we can we can even turn our back and walk away and then come back. And we, we just expect people are going to just be fine with that because we this is our right. No, none of us have the right to be here. And if we don't get to the place where we're broken, God can't continue to work in our lives. As ministers, this to me is one of the greatest dangers that we face is we start feeling pretty good about ourselves because we're not doing the stuff that so many people out in the world are doing. And we start feeling good about our accomplishments and the impact our lives made. And yet, somewhere along the way, it stops me about what Jesus has done and it becomes about what I've done. And then as Christians, we feel like, don't you know who we are? Don't you see what we've sacrificed? What have you Sacrificed. We do that to each other. We, we give to each other expecting a result or expecting a return. Rather than doing it because so much has been given to us. What Paul had to get to, what God wanted the people at Pentecost to get to, was a state of brokenness. Not depression, but a state of brokenness. Where our whole life is laid out before us. And instead of condemnation, like the woman caught in the act of adultery, Jesus is there to lift us up. That instead of persecution for persecution, it's resurrection by the resurrected. You see, Saul was lifted up. You've been lifted up. I've been lifted up. If I had to wait for my life to be righteous enough to share, I'd have nothing to share. I'm doing pretty good if between songs I don't sin. We have to change the way we approach God. It's not a debt. It's an expression of gratitude. The second thing that took place in Paul's life, and it's got to take place in ours, is that personal transformation. Literally sitting alone in the darkness in Damascus before Ananias even came to speak to him for two solid days. Saul had to be sitting around thinking about what is his fate. And when he's given the opportunity for all of his sins to be forgiven, and then he's told he's to be a witness for Christ, it began something in him that will never change. And each one of these things we're going to look at, they are not things that happen at one moment in time. They are a lifestyle that God wants us to live. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 9 is the first time that Saul, it's recorded, becomes Paul. And part of why that took place was the people that he was going to speak to. But part of it is he was reinventing himself from the time that he had spent with Ananias. He was trying to change who he had been. He, He didn't want to be that guy. He didn't want to be the burden, the one that people dreaded. He wanted to be someone whose life could make a difference. But it starts with brokenness. But then there has to be a commitment to personal transformation. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, when he's talking to the church of Rome, he says, This is our act of worship. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, I am begging you, get this, in view of God's mercy with an understanding of all of this. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing. Now, holy does not mean without sin. It means set apart. It means no matter where you're at, you are setting yourself apart for God. Why? Because of what God has done for you, what He's done for me. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We've got to change the way we think. This is a decision that you and I got going to make. When someone comes up and they approaches us and says, can I talk to you about something? We can literally choose to take control of our emotions and say, yes. To be quick to listen, to be slow to speak, to be slow to respond, but instead to desire so much to glorify God that whatever we can change, we choose to change. And so much of our behavior right now, we can just change by making the decision to change. I don't feel very good today. Hope the service is good. To know, no matter how I feel today, I want to give. Then I'm going to get out of myself. I will choose. I may be frustrated with you. I may be irritated with you. But do I think God was never frustrated with me? To catch myself instead of responding the way that I've tended to respond to my marriage. Say, you know what? After 30 years, I want to do a better job. I want Jake and Kelsey to be able to be around us and see a marriage that makes them grateful to be married. I want it to be an inspiration for Scott. If I'm waiting to fix Libby for that to happen, it isn't going to happen. I can't fix her. Lord knows I've tried. But I can fix me. Too many of us in our marriages... We want the other person to make all the changes rather than just surrendering and saying, You know what? I'm broken. And I want to personally transform myself. Second Corinthians five, talking to the church at Corinth. This is a common theme. It's a repetitive theme. It's an enduring theme for Paul. If we're out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us. Because we're convinced the one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. But for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Are you a new creation this year from where you were last year? Or has depreciation shown in your life? What he's talking about here is that desire, because of the grace of Christ, the love of Christ, that we're going to continue to strain and to strive to be better. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God. So many times I hear people say, I just cannot believe this will ever be different in me. That's because it's not coming from God. When it's coming from God, when it's motivated by Christ's love, it has supernatural power. To take a son of thunder and help him to become an apostle of love. To take a persecutor. And help him become the one person who maybe more than anyone else during that period of time impacted the world for Christ. It takes a prostitute or a Samaritan woman and it lets their life change cities. I don't know exactly where you're at, but I know no matter where you're at, by God's grace and in God's hands, you can be transformed. But God leaves that choice to you. It starts with being broken. I don't want to be this way anymore. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself, brought us home. Through Christ. The invitation came to the Thanksgiving meal by the Son of God. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not menings, counting men's sins against Him. He's committed to us, He's given us the responsibility for just sharing the good news. Number three, we've got to be humbled by that grace. It's not the same thing as being broken. To humble yourself is likened to the phrase used for surrender. It is what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but your will be done. And it wasn't a time. It was a way of thinking. For so many of us, we surrendered when we wanted to become Christians. But are we still surrendered? Or is there a conditional clause to our Christianity now? Do we want to make sure that we've got the papers in place for our retirement plans? In 1 Timothy chapter 1, towards the end of his life, in one of the last letters that he wrote, writing to Timothy, who at this time is an evangelist probably 35 to 40 years old. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who's given me strength. Not I thank God that I've been strong enough. I thank God that Christ has given me strength. And He considered me faithful, appointing me to this service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. Do you feel God's grace in abundance day in and day out that we look around and we we everywhere we look, we see God's presence? Along with faith and the love that are Christ Jesus. And here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am The worst. I would dare to say, at this point in Paul's life, he is probably more righteous and more spiritual than at any other point. He's close to the time he's going to die. He served Jesus faithfully for decades. He's been beaten. He suffered for the sake of the cross. But his mindset, his heart, is he's more aware of how far he falls short. Of the glory of God. I pray that in the lives of the people on staff that you can see a humility that can only come with a recognition that no matter how far we may have come from where we've been, we've got so far to go it's almost as if we're not doing anything but starting over. This very reason I was shown mercy and that me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on Him and, reserve and receive eternal life. When we recognize the position and the place that grace has in our lives, it gives hope to the hopeless. To the people who struggle with feeling like I can't be different. I'll never be that positive. I'll never be that happy. I can't love her anymore. I can't love him anymore. I can't take my kids. It changes us. To the letter that he wrote to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 1. He's trying to address people that he knows are teaching about Jesus with impure motives and selfishness. And he says, you know what? Who cares? Let's just be grateful that Jesus is being taught. But then in the end of verse 20, he says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body Whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. From a prison cell, Paul's saying, I don't care. If Christ can be exalted in my life, if that means me being the best prisoner I can be, I surrender. Because His grace has produced in me a humility in Philippians chapter 2. He starts off with the whole thing is if there's anything that we have by being in Christ, it should do one thing. It should change us so we do nothing out of selfish ambition. What does that mean? That means that nothing we do is meant to glorify us. It's meant to glorify what God can do even in us. And the example that he uses there was Jesus, who was by nature God, but that thought didn't occur to him because all he wanted to do was reflect the glory of God. And while we were hostile to Jesus, he called us out on a Damascus road, not to condemn, not to judge, but to give us a purpose and a hope that could change not just our life, but the lives forever. Many of you have been around a long time. How many of you have been Christians for more than 10 years? Okay? More than 20. We got a lot of people that have been around a long time. What a tragic thing if at this point in our life we give up. Three decades into it, Paul's in prison, knows he's going to be executed, and he's praising God for the opportunity to serve. I'm glad that the marriage beat the campus for so many reasons. Number one among those reasons, or maybe not number one, but high up in that list is Steve can't gloat. Because for six years that I've been here, he's been playing with the college students. I can never figure that out because he's so far past being a college student. But the college students dominated the marrieds. Until this year. This was the phoenix of football. The rising out of the ashes of defeat to see a triumphant warrior bird rise on the horizon. It's good for the young people to have older examples to follow. What is tragic is that even in our movement, so many of our churches are really moved and motivated by the youngest Christians. They're the inspiration. They're the celebration. They bring me. Impact. And yet that's not how God wants it to be. He wants us salty old sea dogs to just get more grit. To get more conviction and more faith that we can even at this stage in our life have an even greater impact than we've ever had before. I don't want the older ministry to be kind of the ones that we try to find something useful for them to do. Because they're at the stage that they have to have people even chew their food for them before they can digest it. I'm approaching that. That doesn't motivate me. But the fourth and last thing that I saw in Paul's life is that he was motivated to finish. In a race. Not everybody finishes. And there comes a point in time in a marathon especially when most people feel like I don't know if I can go on. But then there comes a point where you get your second wind and the goal is in sight. I don't know how much longer I'm going to live. I pray to God it's not too much longer. I want Libby to still be young enough to... Cash in on the investment of my insurance policy and be able to marry a good husband. But I want, however long that is, to be useful, to be used by Christ. I don't want to make way for Steve or Doug or you. I want to make way... For Christ to work in my life. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 39, it talks about us not being of those that shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believed and are saved. Somebody asked me this morning how I was doing. I said, I'm old and tired. Both of those statements are true. I'm old. I'm tired. But that doesn't mean I have to be retired. Living our leaving tonight to go to Budapest for the disciples uh, delegates meeting. To make plans for the next two years for what we're going to do in the movement to dream, to talk about the missions, to look at what we've done that's been effective or what's not been effective and see how we can together have a greater impact. We've got goals that we've set for 2020 and what we want to see happen. Those aren't going to just happen by themselves. They're going to happen when you and I step up, pitch in, any up, and let the grace of Christ transform us. To have an impact that we could never have even believed was possible before. When I was a young man, I wanted my life to matter. That Wednesday night before Thanksgiving 1976, I had no idea of who I would be this year at Thanksgiving. And probably had I known it, it would have freaked me out. Because I was so stinking worldly. But I can tell you my life has had a greater impact in one year than my life had had in the 18 to that point. And the difference was being met on a road to Damascus. And experiencing the grace of Christ. In his letter to the church of Colossians. Colossians, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. It says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. I hope you had a great time over Thanksgiving, but I hope that what you feel is holy, set apart for God, and dearly loved. Like there is no way anyone could lavish more love on you. Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. And forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. We hurt each other. We sin against each other all the time. Hang in there. Bear with it. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts when we recognize we're in the hands of the Lord. What do we have to be stressed about? since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. The songs we sang this morning, every one of them was a song talking about how awesome God is and how great He's been to me. The song before this forever and ever God is faithful. I have three decades of history of His faithfulness that's meant to inspire me to believe He'll be faithful tomorrow. And whatever you do, whatever you do today, what does that mean? Anything. Whatever you do today, whether in word or in deed, either by your action or by what you say. Do it all in the name of the Lord. Giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul says, Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind? Forgetting the failures, forgetting the successes, and just straining towards what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of faith. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. Let's do what we know to do, and let's strain forward for what we can. At the end of my life. I don't want to hear stories about hunting or cooking or some other activity. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. In his final letter to his spiritual son, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6, Paul says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. The time has come for my departure It's over. I'm gone. I'm done. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearance. I hope your Thanksgiving holiday was a good one. But I pray that it offered you the opportunity to take time to look back and reflect on the grace of Christ and its influence in your life. And I pray it produces in us the brokenness, the desire to change, the humility that we need to have to finish the fight. Thank you very much.